Greetings, friends. This is Why Whiskey, a history podcast with a whiskey problem. Or is it a whiskey podcast with a history problem? We'll let you decide. Head on up to the bar, grab a stool and a drink, and let's talk. since I've recorded. I've recorded like a whole bunch and then I was able to like put shows out over time and then didn't record a bunch, but I still was putting shows out. But it feels like I, it's been literally forever and seven days since I have been in the studio. So I am super excited to be here and recording for you. It's just me tonight. I'm sorry. Uh, I had the coolest guests my last seven or eight episodes, literally the coolest guests from whiskey makers to brand ambassadors to people who are just the all-time bestest, coolest freaking... I'm using my good words tonight. Yeah, you like that? Uh, bestest, coolest uh, whiskey personalities and enthusiasts that I, I know. Uh, just some really great folks. But as I said in the last episode, I didn't want my, my history folks to stress because we're bringing it back. We are coming back into the mainstay of why whiskey, and that is where we are a history podcast with a whiskey problem. Instead of being a whiskey podcast with a history problem. So, for the next few episodes, we're digging right back into the books. We're looking back. We're looking forward by looking back. I don't know. There's some philosophical bullshit in there somewhere that I'm just not going to get into. So, tonight, here we go. First night back, and we're going right back to that, that wonderful time in American history that saw brother and brother pick up guns and shoot the shit out of each other. Yes, we're talking about a Civil War time frame. Tonight, my friends, we're going to be taking a brief overview of the infamous Union General William Tecumseh Sherman. General Sherman, most renowned for his march across the South to the Atlantic, uh, was a powerful military leader who helped shape the definition of the phrase total war. However, there's far more to this gentleman than that. His military prowess, his intricate family life, and peculiar relationship with Ulysses S. Grant make him this incredible subject with a very intriguing story. So let's get into it, shall we? General Sherman was born in Lancaster, Ohio in February of 1820. Sherman was the sixth of 11 children born to his parents, Charles and Mary Sherman. When describing how he got his middle name, Sherman says that his father tried to use the name Tecumseh with all of his older brothers. But his mother Mary, she wasn't having it. She insisted that her boys be named after her brothers. Fitting. Unfortunately, she soon 
ran out of brothers. Charles then saw his opportunity, and with the coming of his third son, he named him William Tecumseh Sherman. Sherman's father admired the prolific Shawnee chief for his ability on the battlefield and as a leader. According to Sherman's brother-in-law, William Reese, his father was asked why he had chosen to give him this name, to which Charles replied, Tecumseh was a great warrior. With this unique middle name, William would become known as Cump by those closest to him to include his wife. But we'll get to that a little bit later. With what appears to be a little good old-fashioned foreshadowing, William T. Sherman would grow up and embody the spirit of the great leader for which he was named and himself become, quote, a great warrior, end quote. We got a lot to talk about, friends. But before we talk, we must drink. And tonight, I figured for somebody who is uh, ingrained in military history, is a graduate of the Military Academy at West Point, which sits in the Hudson Valley, a place that he would return to a few times and then eventually spend uh, the end of his life in that area. It only is fitting that we go to a distillery in that same area. So tonight, on Tuesday, it's Taconic Tuesday. So we are drinking a bunch of different whiskeys from the Taconic Distillery. Now... The distillery is located in Stanfordville, New York, which is on the eastern side of the Hudson River, up about, I don't know, about an hour and a half north of West Point, about two hours north of New York City, depending upon how you drive and the route in which you take to get there. They boast a bunch of different flavors tonight. We are just going with a couple of uh, couple of ones that I've got on, on my bar currently. I, uh, I've been a huge fan since I was turned on to them being in that area and looking at local whiskeys and local distilleries. So here we go. We are starting this evening with the Taconic Distillery Founders Rye Whiskey. It's 45 ABV, 90 proof for you folks at home. They have a great label that's got the distillery dog on it. The dog has a name. I do not remember the dog's name. I hope the boys at Taconic don't give me a, a C- minus for this. Unfortunately, I did not get the name of the dog when I got some information from them earlier today. So this is their Founders Rye Whiskey. It's 95% rye. It's 5% malted barley. It is about three and a half to four years old. Shall we? I think we shall. So right, at, right at, as you like get started with the nose, it just screams rye. It just has that. For me, rye translates into this. I have this this gooey, chewy, grassy smell. I don't know how to how to describe it uh, any other way than that. It's it's thick and doughy. This, the the nose is thick and doughy, and it just has that that beautiful, sweet, wet grass smell. Oh, and there it is. It's all right there. So right off the get go, uh, the heat isn't bad at all. Uh, you get some some almost a, a dryness uh, uh, similar to like a Four Roses. Uh, feeling, and then you get that lovely the rye tingle across your tongue. And I'm going to be real honest with you, friends. I have been dry for a while, so this is my first neat glass of whiskey in about two weeks. So uh, my palate might be a little on the weaker side tonight. Sorry if I'm not using all those beautiful descriptive words and uh, and Frank or <laughs> Frank <laughs> and Fred Minnickisms. Cool thing about uh, Taconic is that they use locally grown grain. 
So all their grain comes in. And like I said, they, they have a bunch of different styles and types of whiskey out there that are finished, different finishes. Uh, they've got a Mazurna. They've got, a, I think, a Cognac. Uh, finished whiskeys that are phenomenal. They also do a double-barreled maple whiskey. And they also do maple syrup. I have not had the syrup yet, but I hear it's pretty good. And coming from a place where we made our own, I'm going to reserve any judgment on that until I actually get to get some and, uh, and give it a shot. But right now, the Founders Rye Whiskey, pretty common to find, not, not too hard or complicated, uh, and it is great. This would hold up beautifully in, I'm a big mule fan, so in a, a Kentucky mule, this sips wonderfully neat. Mm. All right. Well, that was fantastic. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and continue to, uh, to finish the rest of this while we take a quick break. Uh, and we do some like sponsorship money stuff, if that's okay with y'all. Is that okay with y'all? I can't hear you, so I'm going to assume it's okay. So we'll be right back after the break to talk about General William Tecumseh Shirt. friends i was lying i did not finish that whiskey it's just so wonderful i'm gonna continue to sip it slow until we get to the next one but back to the topic at hand here we go so before we move on i need to quickly clarify something about sherman at the age of nine charles sherman would die unexpectedly charles was william's father this created some major financial turmoil for mary uh, this also forced her to put many of her children into foster care William was placed with Thomas and Maria Ewing. Although aware of his situation, young Kump would make the best of this. As a sitting U.S. senator, Thomas Ewing was able to appoint a person to the military academy at West Point. Thomas thought very highly of young William, and he thought that he would do incredibly well there. And he would not be wrong. The Ewing's approval of young Kump didn't stop at his military potential, and it also included becoming a permanent member of the family. In May of 1850, the Ewings gave their blessing and allowed Sherman to marry their daughter, Eleanor, or Ellen, as she would come to be known by. But more on her later. After being appointed to the academy by his foster father, young Sherman reported to the military academy at West Point in June of 1836. This period at the academy would soon see a host of names soon to be famous in the annals of American history. The young Sherman had a bit of a rough go at the academy, though. Although academically he was solid, good grades across the board, his behavior was a little less than desired. Sherman would be known for his disgustingly messy uniforms, he loved to chit-chat in formation, and he was also known to throw the best barracks parties. The story of his first day reporting to the Academy hits a personal chord as I've been there. I've been stationed there. I know what this looks like. So when he describes walking up the hill from the train station at the southern end of the camp, I know where that is. The train station is still there. The hill is still there. Although, you know, after a couple hundred years, it's probably a little different as far as the surface is concerned but that path 
from the train station up the hill to the main parade grounds known as the Plain is the same, and it leads you into the bowels of the academy. So reading these accounts and hearing him describe these things, I know where this is. It makes me happy to recollect and to know that I walked and ran and did all kinds of crazy things on the exact same hill, walked up the same place past the superintendent's balcony at Taylor Hall on my way to the plane on many occasions. I shared space with General Sherman, and I think that's pretty damn cool. His classmates, uh, the, the year group that he graduated with and the years after him and before him, include names that you know all too well. Names like Longstreet, class of 42, Grant, class of 43, Rosecrans, class of 42, Ewell, John F. Reynolds, class of 41. The West Point class of 1840 would have 25 of its members serve in the Civil War. Ten of those choosing to turn their backs on their country, their army, and their alma mater and fight for the Confederacy. After graduation in July of 1840, during his post-graduation 60-day period of leave, something that still happens today, after graduation, all the cadets get a 60-day break before they have to go report to their follow-on training and then their follow-on assignments after that. Still happens. Pretty cool. But on Sherman's 60-day leave period after graduation, he was on his way actually to his duty station while on this leave and decided he'd swing back by the academy just one last time to see his friends. In doing so, he broke the no association between cadets and officers rule. He was in the barracks. This was not allowed. Sherman's military career nearly came to an end before it had a chance to begin. He was almost court-martialed, but was able to admit his mistake and the charges filed by Major Dallafield, which has his own pond named after him on the Academy right now, were completely dropped. It was his character, his honesty, and his forthcoming nature that brought him out of removal from service. After not getting moved to the Mexican front during the war, Sherman knew his time and his promotion potential were incredibly limited, and he resigned his commission in 1853. Wait, wait. What? <laughs> Hang on. The Union General, Sherman, right? The guy who, like, burned the entire state of Georgia? How, how, wait, how does he resign in 53 but then serve during the Civil War as a general? Is it the same guy? Yes, my friends, it is the same guy. Slow down. Stay with me. We'll get you there. But before we get you there, we have to drink more whiskey. So we're going again with the Taconic Distillery. We are going into whiskey number two. We're going to stay with the rye kick on this one. But this bottle, this bottle's kind of special because this is their straight white rye whiskey, which also has the 95.5 mix. Age is about the same. But this is the barrel strength. Not only is it the barrel strength version, but this is also a single barrel select, meaning... A specific entity or party went through, tasted a bunch of barrels, and said, this is the barrel that we want bottled. They tasted it. They gave it its own name. And they have this fancy little sticker 
with its own name. The name of this selection is called Rye of the Tiger, and it was selected in the vicinity of April or May 2020. So with the name of Rye of the Tiger selected in that time frame, can we guess who's on the sticker? Yes, my friends, it is nobody except for the Tiger King himself. Sweet Jesus. He looks worse in the picture. Oh, my God. Anyway, let's get to it. <laughs> let's, let's taste some of this, this mighty fine whiskey we've got here. So this is, this is a little bit stronger. And the first time I had this was actually at the end of a whiskey run where they had drink stations set up at every kilometer marker. And you drank it every kilometer marker. This was the last one, thank God, because uh, had this been somewhere in the middle, at the 115 it is, uh, fuzziness would have ensued much sooner. It was a great run. By the end of it, I felt wonderful, as you can very well imagine. So on the nose, it's very similar to the Founders. A lot more of the alcohol presence. And it's also significantly darker. Oh, this is so pretty. So pretty. Excellent beating on the legs, too. Whiskey's just pretty. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever, like, just looked at a glass of whiskey? And you could see, if you're not on Instagram at all, you need to go and you need to check out some of these whiskey profiles because these guys, and especially uh, Jeremy, uh, the guy who I had on the last episode, it, it is just so photogenic and it's so beautiful. There's so many things you can do. And just, it's, whiskey's just pretty. So I'm sitting here admiring the glass. All the folks at home are going, what the fuck is he doing? Don't mind me. Mm. Definitely more heat, but in a really, really good way. It doesn't hit you as hard as you might think. Spicy. It is a it is a spicy rye, and it is so good. Uh, I'm getting a lot of just that. <sighs> Man, I'm out of practice. I should have done some tasting and some freaking palate work before I came on tonight. I'm sorry you guys are getting the, the shitty end of the stick for me. I'm getting kind of like a, some burnt sugar and caramels, almost. I think that might have to do some with a barrel influence. Uh, Taconic uses a, a number three char on their barrels. They also, their rickhouse is multiple rickhouses. By multiple rickhouses, they are storage containers, like uh, the ones on the boat that just got stuck in the Suez Canal. Those type of storage containers, they have retrofit into rickhouses, which is super cool. Licorice. I'm getting, like, I'm, I'm legit, I'm getting just wonderful delicate black licorice weird i've never gotten that that tasting out before never but that seriously just tasted like the, the whole sip was just nothing but black licorice and i love it uh my favorite form of it is in the good and plenties you know the candy things in the boxes that you get the movies one of my favorite candies ever um but that was that was great that's that fantastic that's awesome all right well, hey, listen, we're going to take another quick break. We're going to do a, a quick shout-out to some wonderful fellow podcasters of mine, uh, a show that you should definitely check out. And then we're going to come back, and we're going to roll up the final section of our little story on Sherman. See you in just a sec. Once every harvest moon, a talk show comes along that is so groundbreaking, raising the bar to such heights that other podcasts step back and say, wow, that show's got it figured out. 
With a host, tempered in focus, commitment, and sheer will, this is The Derek Duvall Show. Pop culture, news, and interviews with fascinating people that channel the great Edward R. Murrow and Walter Cronkite. The Derek Duvall Show. Find him on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show, and find his new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Podchaser. The Derek Duvall Show. The best thing to happen to hump days since the Geico Camel. What, what? As I sit here and continue to sip this wonderful whiskey that tastes like black licorice. Oh, it's so good. All right, so where were we? Sherman resigned his commission. 1853, he's out. He's done. He knows he's not getting promoted. He knows he's not making big moves. So now he's got to do something else. He's got to get life on the outside rolling. So what does he do? He spends the next few years bouncing around from San Francisco to St. Louis, Kansas to Louisiana, all the while doing various odd jobs like becoming a lawyer, a banker, uh, the latter which he was awful at and his bank ended up failing. Uh, He was also the superintendent of a little school in Louisiana called, quote, the Louisiana State Seminary of Learning and Military Academy, end quote. That long name would get shortened over time and become what we now know as Louisiana State University, LSU. Yes, one of my most admired Civil War leaders is a member of the SEC. A nearly unforgivable sin for me, but I'll move on from that by saying, go blue. All right, back to Sherman. As the secession talk started, And it went from words to action. Sherman knew his loyalty stayed with the United States. Therefore, he had to leave his school, got a hold of his brother, who was able to commission him as a colonel. His brother John was a senator at the time. So now Colonel Sherman is back in the Army. So there is our reintroduction of Sherman into service and on the side of the Union. Sherman had a bit of a slow start in the Union Army. His first battle at Bull Run would be a total loss, but his actions got him promoted to Brigadier General. After this, it seems his mental health takes a bit of a toll on the general, and Sherman struggles with confidence and mental health. Reasons for that will be known to us later. Poked by local news sources as being unstable, this instability would force him to take a break and return home for a period of time. After coming to grips with his mental challenges, in late 1861, early 1862, he would return to command a recruiting battalion out of St. Louis. The instability would linger until he was placed under the command of his fellow West Pointer and friend, General Ulysses S. Grant, in 1862, and he participated in the victory at the Battle of Shiloh. This relationship would prove to be a force to be reckoned with until the end of the war. These two, Grant and Sherman, would become the other's caretaker. Sherman is suspected to have said this in an interview in 1865. Quote, Grant stood by me when I was crazy, and I stood by him when he was drunk, and now we stand by each other, end quote. This duo of command would make its moves through the Western Front and work its way east. Grant, as the new general in command of the U.S. Army, 
and Sherman at the helm of the military division of Mississippi. The two would bring the Confederacy to its knees and eventually end the war, one with tactics and firepower, the other with fire and force. Let's take a, just a quick little caveat for a second, if we could, and let's talk about the Lieber Code, or General Order Number 100. This order was written by a German who fought in the Franco-Prussian War and had three sons fighting in the Civil War, two for the Union and one for the Confederacy. Now, you want to talk about an awkward Thanksgiving dinner. It doesn't get any weirder than that. I promise you. This 157-provision document established the baseline for conduct by the Army and how it was to behave. What does this have to do with Sherman, you ask? This code would bring him some grief as he made his way to the ocean and took liberties with the general order. However, it was Article 156 that Sherman would use to justify his action, and that article states, quote, Common justice and plain expediency require that the military commander protect the manifestly loyal citizens in revolted territories against the hardships of war as much as the common misfortune of all war admits. It goes on to say, quote, The commander will throw the burden of the war, as much as lies within his power, on the disloyal citizens of the revolted portion or province, subjecting them to a stricter police than the non-combatant enemies have to suffer in regular war. And if he deems it appropriate, or if his government demands of him that every citizen shall, uh, by an oath of allegiance or by some other manifest act, declare his fidelity to the legitimate government, he may expel, transfer, imprison, or fine the revolted citizens who refuse to pledge themselves new as citizens obedient to the law and loyal to the government. End quote. Now, whole lot of freaking words right there, right? But basically what that says is... If the citizens comply, they're good to go. If they don't, you get to rough them up a little bit. Whether it is expedient to do so, whether reliance can be placed upon such oaths, the commander or his government have the right to decide. That closes out Provision 156. And the reason I bring that up is Sherman, while in Memphis, is completely frustrated by the resistance he receives on the river. And that frustration festers to the point where he authorizes retaliatory missions on those suspected of resisting or fighting back. This would be the start to an evolution in warfare, and it would pave the road for the scorched earth policy Sherman was to adopt in his march east through the south. I want to be very forward here. Sherman took on a leadership philosophy that was barbaric. There was theft destruction of property, and savage tactics brought a great deal of pain on the people in the path of his campaign. By his own words, Sherman would admit that war is hell. I'm not condoning this type of war fighting, but I think it is important to remember that the steady flow of lackluster leaders that were on a constant rotation through the Union all right, helped create a feeling of frustration through the force and in Washington. The strong-arm tactics of Sherman in the South were the manifestation of having been restricted by poor leadership and his desire to end the war in any way possible, even through the destruction of the foundation of the Confederate soldiers themselves by destroying their homes. The scorched earth or total war concept 
was now the mode of operation for Sherman. He practiced this in Mississippi, and it worked. It worked very, very well. So therefore, now we move on to Georgia. By attacking the support system of the Confederate troops, not just their logistical means, but the morale of the soldiers themselves, Sherman was chipping away at the very will of the enemy. Without beans and bullets, and knowing their homes were going up in flames, the Confederate soldier would only be able to last for just so long. Now, the perception of Sherman's actions gets a little wild. So Grant recognizes that Sherman's getting a little loose and eventually would order him to help provide some relief to the Southern people. Which he did, but did so despite his feelings. In an adaptation of his book called, quote, Sherman's Mississippi Campaign, end quote, Buck T. Foster says this, quote, He had come to believe that the best way to end the war was to strike mightily at the enemy's resources, rendering them useless for the further prosecution of the war. These experiences, and what he learned along the muddy roads from Vicksburg to Meridian, would allow him to wreak more havoc on an enemy's population, supplies, and psyche than any other general in the Civil War had done previously, and earn lasting immortality for it. End quote. That lasting immortality, in the eyes of Southern citizens, is not good. And we'll talk about that too. Sherman demonstrates some real hate for South Carolina in his correspondence after he secures Savannah. And he confirms that Grant didn't require him or his men in Virginia. So, Sherman moves north. Being the first state to secede in December of 1860, Sherman and many others in the Union Army held South Carolina responsible for the whole damn war. Sherman took his now perfected total war strategy and unleashed it throughout the Carolinas, bringing the last remaining Confederate forces to hand over their weapons. After working through terms of surrender with Confederate General Joe Johnston, a name I want you to remember for later, Sherman sent the terms to Washington for approval. They were sternly rejected by Edwin Stanton and publicly criticized by General Halleck. The public defaming of Sherman was not received well by the war-hardened general, and, and he acted out against both individuals in a very calculated and theatrical fashion. Halleck was rebuked by ignoring a request to come see him at his home and have Sherman's troops march in a parade in Richmond. I feel as though it's a little passive-aggressive for the general who just finished destroying three states, but it was very public all the same. Sherman's rebuke of Stanton was far more direct. After marching through the streets in D.C. in May of 1865, Sherman joined the president, his cabinet, and Grant in the viewing podium. According to the memoirs of Sherman's brother, Sherman shook hands with everyone, and when Stanton came along to shake his hand, Sherman simply turned away. That's some big general energy right there. When you turn away from, like, the Secretary of War, you got some cojones, my friend. Huge snub. Huge. So with these public rebukes, Sherman privately rages, but is able to separate his personal feelings from his professional responsibility to his troops. He pens two versions of his farewell address. The first includes subtle jabs to the leaders who wronged him. However, Sherman recognized that this was not the way to garner the support of his troops, 
who are about to stack their rifles and reintegrate as members of the reunited but greatly damaged nation. He needed them to be productive citizens. They would be the most important tool the U.S. possessed to build unity between the two sides. In an article for OAH Magazine of History, author William M. Ferraro goes deep into this event and displays the two versions of the letter, version one and the final copy of Sherman's farewell address titled Special Field Order Number 76, display just how professional the general was and just how an effective leader he had become. In the closing paragraph of his Order 76, Sherman writes this, quote, Your general now bids you all farewell with the full belief that as in war you have been good soldiers, so in peace you will be good citizens. And if unfortunately a new war should arise in our country, Sherman's army will be the first to buckle on its old armor and come forth to defend and maintain the government of our inheritance and choice. Signed, William T. Sherman, Major General. That was pretty badass. All right. So with that, final break. Stretch your legs. Go get a new glass because we're going to get some more whiskey. We'll be right back. Hey, friends, it's Ian. I want to ask for your support. Yes, I'm doing it. I'm that guy. So there's a couple different ways you can support the show. If you want to support the show for free, all I need you to do is hop over to iTunes or Podchaser.com and drop me a review. These reviews help kind of bolster my ability to get out there and have more people see the show and come and enjoy the whiskey and history and shenanigans that we enjoy on a bi-weekly basis. Now, if you want to go a little bit deeper and you want to hand over a dollar or two, that would be awesome. I have started a page on buymeacoffee.com. So the link is in the show notes, www.buymeacoffee.com slash whiskey. You can make a donation of however big or however little you want. That's just going to help me buy coffee to stay awake, to keep writing, researching, and pushing this show out to you guys, looking for more guests. And just being an all-around freaking, you know, general kind of fun whatever. To those who choose to donate on Buy Me A Coffee, you will be sent a private link. A private link that will take you to the video vault of Why Whiskey. Yes, we record the videos. So you get to see me and a guest, or just me sometimes, putting the show together. Unedited, nothing. You get to see the flubs. You get to see just exactly how much I say um. Ever notice that it's crazy anyway two ways to support drop me a review or go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash why whiskey and make a small donation to the show thanks cheers all right folks here we go we're wrapping it up the war is over it's done sherman received the surrender of joe johnston he released his troops but he stays active duty After the war, Sherman was moved back out west and was put in control of all U.S. Army forces between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains. This is a big deal. Why is this a big deal? This tends to be where folks get kind of bent out of shape about Sherman because he was given the task of settling the west. And by settling the west, I mean 
moving the indigenous people off of the land so that the U.S. citizens could take it over. Sherman would publicly decry the whole process, but he still had a job to do, and he did that job very well. Some events that occurred under his command, obviously the infamous uh, 7th Cavalry uh, at Bull Run, where Custer met his fate because he was dumb. Potentially a show coming up on him sooner than later. But all of that happens while Sherman is in charge of the West. There's a lot of things that happen now. Shortly after this, 1869, his buddy Grant stops being the general of the U.S. forces and becomes the president of the United States. And the president looks to his buddy, his freaking battle-hardened pal, and says, you know what? Tag, you're it. When Grant was elected president, Sherman would take over as commander-in-chief of the U.S. Army. This position he would hold until retirement in April of 1884. Upon his retirement, rumors began to swirl. These rumors swirled after his retirement about a potential political career. But those rumors were squashed, crushed, destroyed, and put to rest forever when Sherman himself said, quote, I will not accept if nominated, and I will not serve if elected, end quote. The Civil War hero lived out the rest of his days in New York City, where he was a bit of a social butterfly, often taking in the theater, engaging in speaking engagements at dinner, and became an amateur artist, believe it or not. The man who led his troops to destroy most of the South picked up a paintbrush and made some art. I love it. I absolutely love it. He would do this until his death in 1891. Sherman was buried in St. Louis, and all flags to include those in the southern states that hated him so very much, were flown at half-mast to honor the American hero. Interesting note, one of Sherman's pallbearers was none other than the Confederate General Joe Johnston. There's a story there that I haven't had the chance to look into yet. It is suspected that Johnson who refused to wear a hat during his pallbearing duties, caught cold from that event. A cold that would eventually turn into pneumonia, and the pneumonia would eventually end up leading to his death. A valiant move by a friend, I'm sure, but you have to see the irony. Sherman took out yet another Confederate general even after he died. <laughs> a little morbid, but we all have to chuckle at that just a little bit. Before we go on, let's talk about the last whiskey of the evening. We have another single barrel selection. This is the Taconic Distillery Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Now, this mash bill is a little bit different. Uh, I think it's a 70-25-5, which is a 70% corn, 25% rye, and 5% malted barley, if I'm reading that correctly. This is barrel strength, so we're back at the uh, the 115 proof. The single barrel select is called, but doesn't have a fun name. Oh, but it does have a fun sticker. So Gumby and his horse are on the back, and it's just a single barrel selection. That's bomber. So just a quick refresher to remember, it's about four and a half years old. It goes into uh, barrels that have the char three on them, not the alligator char that you see some distilleries using. They make this whiskey in a copper select from ISC. It's a Vendome 
column still. Now, the column still is the ones that you see, like the big tubes up that have the little windows. And each one of those little windows is another plate of distillation. So it's multiply di distilled all the way up before it comes down into the catch basin flow. And it's beautiful. So this is a bourbon. Uh, different rules. Actually, same rules, just different grain. Big difference between rye and bourbon, though, is that bourbon can only be made in America. Hmm. This is just, this is, this is sweet vanilla, sugar, caramel. This is everything that I love about bourbon. Same consistency as the, the rye at the same proof, which is great. The mouthfeel on this is excellent. It's so round and smooth. This does drink hotter, though. Now, this is a much fuller bottle, so I've had significantly less of this, and maybe I had, had less chance to, to breathe and move, I guess, but, uh, but this does this does sip a little bit hotter. You can actually feel this a little bit more significantly in your chest, in the back of your throat. But it's still so good. Oh, this is so good. All right. So here we go, friends. We're going to wrap up our talk on Sherman here by chatting a little bit about his family. Sherman was preceded in death by his loving wife, Ellen, in 1888. Over their 38 years of marriage, they raised eight children. Two of them... William T., or Willie as they called him, who died at the age of nine in 1863, and their son Charles, who died a week before turning six months old in 1864, also preceded their father in death. The rest of his kids would go on and live full lives, leaving Sherman with 13 grandchildren. The Sherman family history is captured in beautiful letters between Ellen and Kump. The joys of children, the struggle of war, the incredible loss of two of their kids just a year apart are all captured between the two through their correspondence. This little slice of family history added more to the Union General than I had previously thought. Along with the challenges of fighting a war, Sherman was facing challenges at home. All of this paints an even more complete picture of the Civil War hero, father, husband, and career soldier that is General William Tecumseh Sherman. Which brings up an interesting thought for me. His total war concept, by bringing strife to the families of the soldiers, was not a feeling that he was unfamiliar with. During his campaign, Sherman lost two of his boys. He knew what strife at home would do to people. He struggled with mental health even before this. And this goes to his resilience and his commitment to end the war. There are many of those in the South that still judge him rather harshly. There's a famous senator who said, quote, he was a little careless with fire. But all of that action served one purpose, and that was to end the war, to which the purpose was served. Morally, there's probably some questions there, but... I'll leave that to the philosophers to figure out who was right and wrong and what is right and wrong. That's not my beef. I'm just going to share some facts, some fun stories, and all that other stuff. So, friends, that's going to do it. That's it. That's going to wrap us up for tonight. I hope you enjoyed uh, chatting about Sherman, maybe catching a, a piece or two of information that you didn't know about him. I, I would encourage you to do your own work. I, I've got a list of websites to go. And this is, I seriously, a scratch of the surface of this guy. There was so much going on with him and so many wonderful things that he did. We could take individual battles and individual campaigns and make them a four-part series of how he was able to move 
and redirect and use supplies and how him and Grant reshaped the thinking on logistics and how that enabled them to be mobile and to move and to be able to swiftly go through and chop the South right in half, leading to the eventual victory uh, for the Union. The Civil War is a fascinating thing. I've been doing a bunch of reading on it here lately. One of my history mentors, uh, Colonel Retired Ty Sedgwell, just released his book called Robert E. Lee and Me. I strongly recommend you all read it. It's phenomenal. And there will be a show uh, about the book, about that story, and maybe a guest appearance by the man himself. I don't know. He's a busy dude. Hopefully we get to work that out. But if not, at least we're going to talk about the book in depth because it does go into detail about the Civil War from a philosophical side of view by using historical fact and evidence. So with all that to be said, check out these links. Go read some of the documents. Look through the story of Sherman even more so than what we covered here tonight. Go find you a bottle of this uh, Taconic Distillery Whiskey because you won't be upset. Any bottle you grab is going to be worth it. It's all wonderful. The Duchess bourbon uh, is their 90 proof, their their normal stocked bourbon. You should be able to find that and the Founder's Rye in most places. The Mazurna, the Cognac, the special finishes might be a little harder for some folks to find outside of New York, but go. And if by all means you are in New York, hit them up. I think they can still deliver to in-state folks. Uh, so if you live in the state of New York and you want to give their their product a try, hop on their website. I'm pretty sure they can still ship to you. That's how I was able to get these two single-barrel selections, which are absolutely freaking phenomenal. So for those of us here at Y Whiskey, and by us I mean uh, me, <laughs> uh, I appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to the show. I wish you the best. Have a great evening, and I can't wait to come back and talk to you in a couple weeks. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, if you have any comments, questions, or would like to join me at the Bar Questionable Life Choices for an episode, hit me up on email at whiwhiskeyhistory at gmail.com. Cheers. <laughs>